0: Welcome to the George Washington University Business of Sports podcast. We talk about sports, careers, mentors, networking, and a lot more here. And we do the show from the GW campus in Foggy Bottom. I'm Mark Hyman, professor in the Sports Management program, and my producer is Henry Levy. My guest is Mike Wilbon, co host of Pardon the Interruption on ESPN. And in our chat, Mike and I spoke about sports journalism and the impact of social media, underrepresentation of African Americans in media, Colin Kaepernick in the NFL, and playing golf with Barack Obama. Mike, welcome to GW. Thank you. Um, Let's call you Professor? Or can I just call mm, you Mark? I would or... say Professor would okay, be
1: He's been waiting for that <laughs> for 35 years. That's the
0: least um, I can do. <laughs> so I, I want to take you back to 2001 when Mark Shapiro, an executive at ESPN, approached you with the idea for a talk show. I, I don't think that it had a name at the time. It did not. What was your reaction to the, the initial idea?
1: So I, I'll tell you the, the absolute reaction, almost word for word, uh, It was 2001. The summer of June of 2001, I was out covering the NBA Finals. The Lakers, Shaq and Kobe were playing somebody. I don't remember who. Indy, Philly, one of them. And um, Mark Shapiro, who we had gotten to know during his time as executive producer of something called Sports Century. When You see profiles on ESPN at the turn of the century. They were produced by Mark Shapiro and his this panel he put together, and I was a member of it. So was Tony. And Mark called me in L.A. and said, remember... When uh, I was doing Sports Century three years earlier, and I told you I was going to put you on television if I ever became somebody big in the network, and I said vaguely, <laughs> I remember this, and he said, "Well, I, I need we need to have dinner tomorrow." And I said, "Mark, I'm in L.A." And he said, "I know where you are. We need to have dinner tomorrow." I said, "What? What? 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 Could there be in the world that's so urgent that you need to fly to L.A. to have dinner with me?" And he said, "Well, I was just named." Uh, I don't know, vice president of programming, something like that. And the first thing I'm going to do in that position is put you and Tony on television. And I said, the second thing you're going to do is get your ass fired. (laughs) Because this didn't make any sense to me. Why? Why? why Well, do you know why we we were... One, you know, you guys are going to find this hard to believe, but we didn't aspire to be on television. We didn't care about television. We didn't trust television. We didn't think television was any good at doing what we did. We knew we were better than the people on television when it came to telling a story. And we were. Because if we weren't, they wouldn't have come to get me and Tony in the first place. They wouldn't have needed us. They wouldn't have needed Adam Schefter. They wouldn't have needed Mort. All these people that you see, these were newspaper people. They wouldn't have needed Rachel Nichols. They wouldn't have needed Christine Brennan. They wouldn't have needed, you know, I could go on. Every, the whole, you know, everybody on. So we thought, what, what do I want to do that for? Um, and maybe it doesn't work. Maybe nobody cares to see us in that format. So we were both a little bit arrogant about it um, from having done it for 20 years. And so we, we thought it was crazy. But Mark flew out to dinner, and we had this dinner, and uh, we sat at the Ivy in Beverly Hills. That was my first taste of a new life. And he drew, he drew his vision on a cloth napkin. And it took four hours. We got there at 8 o'clock, and at 12.30, it took four and a half hours. At 12.30, I knew that my life was changed, that the life that I had known for the previous whatever, 21 years, was done. Um, Because I knew that Mark Shapiro was just that smart, and he had a vision. And I understood that what I was doing was also (laughs) sort of, you know, looking in the side view mirror going, what's happening back here in, in the print world? How is it evolving? So in that in that span, the time it took him to fly to L.A., tell me what the what the 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 vision was, and explain why Tony and I would should and would do this. I understood that that was it.
0: And, and what sorts of conversations were going on between you and Tony? This that, is the conversation
1: between me and Tony. Tony's the most neurotic man in America, as you might have gleaned. <laughs> Tony is some form some form of Woody Allen. He he really is, and. Not the perverse part, just the public part. Um, and Tony is up at 4 o'clock in the morning walking his dog every night, morning, whatever that is. It's 4 o'clock is barely night for me. So I called from L.A., looked at my watch. It was 12.30, which meant it was 3.30. And I said, all I got to do is wait for like 20 more minutes. By the time I drive to my hotel, this fool will be up walking his dog. And I did. I called him and I said, it's, you know for me to call you at 4 o'clock in the morning. He goes, I know it's something important. And I said, okay, I want you to shut up and listen to me for 10 minutes. Don't say a word. And I'm going to explain to you what just happened out here. And uh, I did. And there was a silence on the end of the phone to let me know he was taking it seriously. And so we knew again that our lives, as we had known them, he even said, you know, we got to do this. Our lives are done as we know them. And we don't know what that means. It means, you know, the Washington Post could say, get out. We don't want you. We could get out and the show could fail and then we have nothing. We don't. We don't know what it means. So... There wasn't much business of it. The business of it was this. The business decision for me was that um, I'm not quitting my day job to do this. I don't know what this is. I don't trust TV anyway. You're looking at somebody sitting here now who doesn't trust TV, much less 17 years ago, 16 years ago. So the business of it was I'm going to keep doing what I do if I can get permission from The Washington Post, and we'll see if we can do these two things. And Tony decided to do the same thing. So I did did both of them for nine years.
0: Mm and trust TV. So let's skip ahead to okay. today. Uh, how did you prepare for today's show?
1: Um, here's how I prepared for today's show. Oh, I thought you might ask that. <laughs> um, I lived. That's what I do. My life um, was already a, a one long bit of preparation for whatever I was doing the next day or the same day, which means in my case, I, I uh, Tony gets up, and he studies. He gets up at four o'clock in the morning because he studies things and he takes notes. And he literally has a long legal pad and he, you know, puts things on this legal pad. And I do just the opposite. I stay up all night and watch everything. So last night I watched Monday Night Football and the violence of a game that I once knew and was attracted to, and a game that really spelled out why we all, why America loves football, but why it can't be done that way anymore. And I watched that and examined it and tweeted and talked to a couple of assistant coaches on the phone who I like to talk to to make me understand things about football I don't understand necessarily. And then I watched about at least the, in at least the fourth quarter of four NBA games, including Steph Curry step on somebody's ankle live in live time. Um, I watched the Wizards lose by 150. Um, I then, I, I, so I watched, literally, I watched LeBron. So I watched four fourth quarters last night after Monday Night Football, or while I was watching Monday Night Football. And then um, looked, went online and read some other stuff. I, you know, I didn't know what was going on with a couple of stories. I can't remember what they are now. But I, I, I went online. I'm on constant text chains with lunatics. People who are either in sports or maybe out of sports, and some people who are out of sports, who are my friends who know more about sports instinctively than anybody. And these people text all night, as I do, and I go to bed around three thirty. And so I'm doing what I'm doing from eight o'clock when I get home to three thirty in the morning. Luckily, I have a nine and a half year old son that is just like his father now and wants to stay up all night watching sports, and it helps me both spend time with him and do my work this does not make my wife happy but that's the way it is mm-hmm. and um, so I'll do that tonight um, and and then this morning uh, I watched more than usual because I wanted to hear people talk about the violence of last night's game and what it meant to the sport What what, what is this going to mean, I don't mean just the suspensions, just the news, but I wanted to hear intelligent discussion I listen to more talk radio today than I ever listen to, I don't listen to talk radio uh, in the main and uh, I did all that. I'm trying to think if I, I... might have talked to one or two people about pro basketball this morning. No, I actually didn't. It was all football. And I went in. And so by then, by the time we get rid of the show, that's all in my head. That's My head is swirling with all of the stuff, all of the, you know, discussions and, and, and uh, taking into the games. And I did not talk about any of it until I saw Tony on the set today. But that's, that's not... Like practiced. It's not even intentional. It just happened our schedules wound up that way. And Tony's in the meantime doing a podcast. He's doing a radio show, a podcast and he prepares for it differently. But that's the way I do it. I want to see it. I want to see it live. I want to see the drama of it. I want to have anger about it or happiness over it. I want to react to it the same way I did as a fan and as a reporter. Um, I don't DVR it. I don't come to it later. Um, I want to experience it. So that, that's how I prepare every. That's every day. That's, every, that's my life. You know, that's my life. It was my life. It's been my life since I was, I don't know, 18, 19 years old. I understood in college what I was going to do. So I've been doing this shit. That's 40 years.
0: Uh, I, are there um, issues outside of sports about which you're just as passionate
1: as you are sports? If so we were talking to you about travel or mm-hmm. wine mm-hmm. or politics. Not wine. Politics, God knows, yes, now I've been here too long. I, I like to say I've lived in the two most political cities in America, Chicago and Washington. Um, yeah, wound up, depressed, angry, uh, all the stuff that you would stereotypically expect a African-American man from the south side of Chicago who grew up in the camp of age in the 60s and the 70s to have that person sitting over there in that building. Yeah, I have all the raw emotion of anybody like me. Um, So I have that, which I'm obsessed with every day I'm I'm a travel nut Um, I had one night Where I could have gotten in bed early this week That was Sunday Instead I stayed up downloading music Until 3.30 in the morning So this is, you know I I am that person, I don't sleep I can sleep on the back end, not on the front end Uh, Passionate about a lot of stuff But but, but nothing as much I think is sports Because sports, I don't mean the results of games I don't mean how many points people scored I mean, the major issues confronting what it is that I care about. So, yes, yeah, so all this stuff.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Are, are there issues about which your
0: thinking has evolved over time? You had one position that was mm-hmm. extreme or maybe not extreme. Mm-hmm. And over the 15 or 16 years, you,
1: you think quite yeah. differently about Yeah, plenty that. of them, almost all of them. I mean, age brings that to you naturally, um, parenthood brings that to you. Losing a parent brings that to you. Um, A massive increase in your salary brings that to you. Um, You know, all of those things. Did I say age? Uh, And and something. And you know. And I'm. You know. One thing. One reason I don't trust. I don't trust ideologues. I don't like ideologues. You know. I don't trust people who say they're all one thing down, you know, I'm this. I don't trust you. <laughs> you know, I'm conservative as hell on some issues, and I'm left of left on other issues. And that's what real people are to me. I don't trust people who try to have a consistent pattern of behavior in one direction, because that means it's a pattern. They've got an agenda. I don't trust them. If I don't, Even if I trust them, I usually don't like them. Um, and so, I'm, you know, I'm all over the place. I got you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm many things. I am what I mentioned, a black man from the south side of Chicago. I'm also the product of a Jesuit education. I'm the product of private education, and whatever that means to certain people. You know, I'm, I have Midwestern sensibilities. I'm not from west or east coast. That's another set of behavioral patterns that have to be figured out. And so all those things are, you know, they're like a big equalizer. They don't call them equalizers anymore. What do DJs use? What are those boards? where you play with sounds, or you play with bass and treble and mid-range, what are those? Come on, some oh, sound. DJs. Soundboards. Sound boards. They're soundboards. So you know, all the ingredients they move around. So yeah, I think differently about a lot of stuff. I think differently about Colin Kaepernick today than I did a year ago. My my, my thinking on that's moved. How? Um. I admire what he did and I acknowledge his sacrifice and I think he was the wrong messenger in, in a lot of ways through no fault of his I think I think Michael Bennett's arrival on the scene made me go I don't like this guy as much you know and I admire what Colin Kaepernick has done I do, he continues to pay for it sacrifice means you lose stuff people don't want to acknowledge that they think like like I, I, you can check the tape as they say in last February, March, April, May Tony would ask me every week or so But you think Kaepernick's going to get a job? And I would say, no, Kaepernick's not working again. These people are plantation owners. They don't want him. They will not employ him. So it brings me great pleasure now, even as my thinking has changed a little bit, to say to Tony, what did I say to you last February? He's not working again. This is collusion. Can they prove it? No. Does it make it less? No. Um... My thinking on all that's changed. Um, Should college athletes be paid? My thinking on that has changed. It used to be no, they should not be paid. You know, tuition, room, board, books, that was enough. It's not enough because everybody else gets paid. Why should they be the only ones not getting paid? It's evolved over a period of time. If if, if people can write checks to the tune of $11 billion dollars, To televise, to broadcast NCAA men's Division I basketball games. It's 11 billion, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) What? So, you mean to tell me if they got checks for 10 billion and you put the other 1 billion in a trust fund for these athletes, it wouldn't work? A billion dollars cures a lot of stuff. They don't do it, they're not gonna do it. This leads to the accusation of, one more time, plantation mentality. That's what it is. The stakes are a lot higher. The rewards are a lot higher for everybody, including field hands, if you want to carry that analogy any further, which I just did. But it's still the same mentality. Um, And so, yeah, I had a change of heart with that, too. And because it's just too much money for them not to make anything. And so do I think I was wrong 30 years ago? Maybe. But positions evolved. There wasn't $11 billion at stake 30 years ago for the men's basketball tournament. It was a lot of money, but wasn't that. So,
0: yeah, that's one of them. That's another one. Okay, one or two questions about Mike Wilbon. Uh Uh-oh. Mentors. Who who has really been important to you and given you the best advice over the course of your...
1: It depends on what it is, Mark. That's a great question. It depends on what it is. I mean, you know, my mentors are people that you've never heard of, probably, unless they've been to speak to your class. They're editors at, at the Washington Post and other newspapers, um... You know, they're, they're, my, they're, they're, they're mostly teachers. Teachers, I had a, um, maybe the smartest teacher mentor I ever had was my high school sophomore English teacher, who every day I go back to something he said. He uh, made such an impact on me that uh, recently in a high school reunion, I said to one of the teachers who's still at my high school, was there when I was there, I said, Where's Mr. Wall? Where is he? They said, He's in the city. And I said, you know, he's the guy that got to me more than anybody else got to me. And I was 15. I had him again at 16 for my first journalism class. And unbeknownst to me, and as a surprise, they invited him to the dinner the next night and sat him at my table. And it was great to just be able to, you know, sort of reconnect with this person who had this impact on me at 15 and 16 years old. And now we're talking about 55 years old. This is a few years ago. Um, And then there are other editors who said stuff, who... I work with every day. Um, if I need to name names, there are people like Lynn Shapiro and Sandy Bailey and Gene McManus um, and others who did that. Lynn Downey, Ben Bradley in terms of big mentorship. Tony. Um, and there, you know, David Halberstam. I mean, there's some people, there's, some, you know, Bob Green. There's some fairly famous people in there too that that later became mentors when I was in my late 30s, maybe even early 40s. And... and, and you know, they were just there, not for crises. I didn't have that, knock on wood. I didn't have any of those. These were, these were daily sort of things that came up uh, over a period of decades, really, that I was fortunate enough to have people there that knew stuff. Uh, brilliant people, capable people. Bob Woodward, you know, the greatest reporter in the history of America. <laughs> I mean, you know, you, you have him right there in your newsroom at lunch, playing golf with them. Uh, that's that's a phenomenal thing to have.
0: So last question for me. Um, you know, you've talked about some of these kind of transformative experiences mm-hmm. in your life. In 2011, you and Tony were invited to the White House and I, I think sat in the Oval Office with President
1: Obama. Yeah. Could tell us a little bit about that. Well, we were, um, but, but I had gotten to know President Obama when he was just Barack Obama running for the Senate, um, in 2000, I, before that, 2001, Charles Barkley and I were working on Charles's second book, so maybe it was 2003, 2002 or three. and one of the things we wanted to do was talk to people about race in America. I mean, we chose a whole bunch of people from, you know, there were two presidents in the book, there's Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, and there's a rabbi, there's, you know, there's all, just all cast people, rabbi that I, it turns out I went to school with, um, and so, by the time we got to be invited to the White House, we'd already gotten to know the president a little bit. Um, the first phone call I got when I was my son was born um, was this phone call that I answered in the car uh, driving, and uh, I just said, "Hello, Senator." And it was during the campaign because Matthew was born March of 2008, and I said, "Hello, Senator," because I hear the voice and. There's a playful voice on the other end going, stop gripping the wheel so tight, of course. And I was was like this. And, you know, speed up, speed up. You know, all the things that you guys aren't familiar with this yet. When you have a kid, the first time the kid's in the car, you're terrified. And you don't know what you're doing. And, of course, he already knew that because he had had two of them much earlier. And it was President Obama making fun of me, driving home that way. And, you know, we come from sort of the same places, even though Hawaii is his home and not mine. Um, he lived on the south side of Chicago and made his name there his political basis from there he's there and his wife and I grew up in the same place and so we have a lot of people and a lot of things in common I already known him then. so I wasn't terrified by the time we got to the White House um, the terror came later the terror came when we all became we became golf buddies that became sort of terrifying you played golf with Obama? all the time wow Yeah. And, <laughs> of course, I'll put it this way Quite a bit, why don't I say it that way um, and yeah yeah that that the first the first time that was sort of surreal um, and you know it's it's interesting to see the President of the United States in that way, somebody that you that you know who invites you to stuff um, and it's a little I, I don't want to call it intoxicating because I don't think even though I'm a huge supporter disagree with who he is and what he did coming in, much less going out uh, you know um, even though there's that, because I'm not you know, sort of a cheerleader we, we got paid for decades and it sticks with us to sort of step back and look at things without pom-poms and I can do that even with I, I think I can do that even with somebody that you admire, that you like I mean some plenty of times on our show we say wait a minute, he's my boy and I love him but that's insane you know, so Tony and I have no problem. Most of us have no problem. People who do what we did for a living have no real problem doing that. Um, but it was—it's an honor too. I mean, it's all the things you think—it's an honor, it's weird. You know, you're 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 dancing in a room at two o'clock in the morning at the president's birthday party. It's, just, it's like, <laughs> and that was about the sixth or seventh invitation. This was the first one we mentioned. So, it, it's it's fun. It's it's eye opening, and it's the kind of thing that you never forget. You never should forget. Any plans to be back in the Oval Office? Uh, You know, maybe in four years or so, (laughs) I could be back in. I don't know. I, I never thought I would be in there. I never thought I would be in there anyway. So it was just sort of also weird. I knew the last time I was there would be a while before I'd be back. I knew that. I knew when I was there for the going away party, whatever that was, January of last year, this year, January of 17, I was like, okay, I'm not seeing this room for a while. Or this building on the inside for a while. So I don't know. I don't know.
0: Thank you, Mike. I appreciate it.